Welcome to Offshoot, the Fight and Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then, we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Offshoot. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Ben Miller, the co-founder and CEO of Fundrise, on the podcast. Fundrise is a real estate, credit, and tech crowdfunding platform. It was founded in 2010 and launched in 2012, making it one of the pioneers in the crowdfunding space. Currently, Fundrise owns $7 billion worth of real estate and manages $3.3 billion in equity from over 400,000 investors and 2 million active users. Fundrise's mission is to simplify and make the investment into alternative asset classes accessible and cost-effective for traditional non-institutional investors. Ben Miller is a seasoned professional in the field. He comes from a real estate family and describes himself as a deal junkie. However, he's transitioned from a narrow, real estate-centric, deal-focused perspective to lead a tech company that prioritizes process, specific segments of the real estate, and scalability. This distinction between being tech-first and real estate-second is something that many, including myself, may overlook. I believe this podcast will change your perspective. There's a lot in this one. Join us as we delve into a wide range of topics, including prioritizing the investor's interests, a fundamental principle for Fundrise. Later on in our conversation, we'll discuss how noble intentions often fail to overcome incentive structures, the inherent fragility of individual deals, and why building a diversified portfolio is a wiser approach for most investors. Opportunities for institutional investors in the current capital markets, such as the Yale Endowment, and how they might affect equity inflow into opportunity funds. Fundrise's innovative fee structure in their vertical integration of both fund companies and real estate operating firms, with neither entity taking a carrier. The rationale behind Evergreen Funds and Ben's insight on managing duration and leverage risk in the face of macroeconomic changes. The challenges of transitioning from a deal-focused approach to a fund-centric model, which resulted in loss of half of their investors. The art of recognizing good deals, as well as the importance of avoiding bad ones, and why great deals are rarely handed to you on a silver platter. The value of developing talent internally, as opposed to hiring externally, and the difficulty in identifying talent before they prove their abilities the inevitability of software revolutionizing the real estate industry and Fundrise's role in this transformation, how preferred equity is currently linked to multifamily deals and its implication for common equity, the influence of interest rate changes on the flow of capital into real estate and how this impacts real estate values, the significance of finding signal in the marketplace and understanding that what works in practice may not always align with theoretical expectations. The process involved going into the market, learning, and scaling. The certainty that AI will impact real estate, even if the exact mechanisms remain uncertain. 
the importance for leaders to refrain from transmitting their negative moods to their teams, and lastly, the value of determination, perseverance, and fulfilling one's responsibilities, along with the importance of taking time to recharge. I hope you enjoy the pod. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I think it was Kelly Wren, uh, Ballard Spar, that makes this connection possible. Yeah. Yep. He's a great lawyer. He's a good dude. I, I actually haven't had a lot of legal exposure to him, but uh, skied with him a few times, and we have a lot of mutual friends, and he at one point uh, thought it would make sense. So thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, look, I'd say Fundrise is, is pretty well-known enterprise at this point. You guys have been around for you know, 13 years or so, 11, 11 years, I guess. Um, but in your own words, can you just kind of tell me um, about Fundrise? Yeah, we, we launched with a mission to democratize investing into real estate. So I, I had a real estate background, and real estate is something that is a big asset class. A lot of people do pretty well in it. But individuals could only really invest like uh, buying a house or something, not the way that professionals do it, which is buying apartment buildings or industrial. And so we we sought to democratize it the same way people own stocks and bonds. They should own real estate and other what are called alternatives. And we eventually expanded to alternative credit and venture capital. I don't I don't think it was Kelly, but I've certainly heard it along the travels. Um for any syndicator or, or person out there raising capital, you know, every investor is a potential plaintiff. How do you guys think about the risk of, uh, because I believe Fundrise is doing, you know, both accredited and non-accredited investors, meaning you can get, you know, the, the real teacher, firefighter, uh, nurse, you know, folks who are just your common working folks investing in deals that have a risk profile, they may or may not understand. How do you guys think about managing the risks of kind of blowback from even a thousand or 5,000 or $10,000 investor who didn't realize the risk they're taking and, uh, you know, ends up kind of coming back to the, to the sponsor or the marketplace. Well, so, um, one of our company values put the investor first. And so I, I think by doing what's, first and foremost best for the investor is it's been a a good mantra for us and that most real estate sponsors don't do that that's not really what they're about they're about trying to make as much money as they can and um and sometimes this the money gets uh manhandled by the sponsor so um so that's the first thing and and this just it's a very different value system than real estate which is just not a customer centric business it's a asset-centric business, transaction-centric. So that's so. there's a lot in the values. There's a lot in the diversification. People invest in highly diversified uh, strategies rather than no, nobody can invest in a single deal. Deals are too risky, for in my opinion. Um, and so by, by having sort of very strong control over the whole real investment process, I think we've been able to manage um, money for the investor. Uh, and that's been how we you know, actually do, by, do right by them, sort of get the outcomes I think that they're looking for. Yeah. And look, Ben, you guys have been in the game from, 
you know, the very early days with Obama and the, and the Jobs Act and all of the promise that was there. Uh, I think you guys have done a good job of capturing that. But I've also witnessed that you've pivoted a lot, right? You just talked about deals are too risky. And I think in some of the early, please correct me on all of this, but in some of the early days, I think you guys were doing first deed of trust, uh, debt stuff. I know you, you, I think in the very early days had your own projects and you were doing crowdfunding through that. And then you have definitely transitioned over to, you know, investing in fund vehicles, which is what you just mentioned. How, what's informed your guys kind of trajectory change, the pivots that have been required, uh, as you've kind of come into the space and learned, because I think there's been some pretty significant changes, right? Yeah, we definitely changed and we learned a lot along the way. So, yeah, so we, 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 I conceived of the idea in 2010 and um, it took me about a year to get find an attorney who would help me figure out how to get it done from a regulatory point of view. Um, and so we predate the JOBS Act. We actually possibly helped sort of birth the JOBS Act. JOBS Act comes after like what we're doing and the SEC, the way we were able to do what we did is we went to the SEC, went in the front door, met with them. So this is what we want to do. The SEC is like, okay, that sounds interesting. Like, and we worked with them and they learned a lot from us trying to do it. So when the Jobs Act came, I know it informed a lot of their perspective. Like they had um, seen us working on trying to do it. So that, so that's like a, from an origin story point of view, then the Jobs Act sort of amplified what we were doing. And then we, we used to, you know, like I'm a real estate guy originally. So my, you know, my real estate biases, like I, I have a better understanding of what they are. They're sort of invisible. Obviously bias is usually invisible, the person who has it. <clears throat> but the real estate person is very deal centric. Deals are what, like how they think about the world, what motivates people, how they get paid. And so um, the initial idea was you would, you know, you raise money for deals. And we did, um, we did the first three deals were my own were our own real estate deals where we were the sponsor. And then we and then we transitioned to being a lender. And we did, I think, I think overall we did 44 separate single deals that we let investors invest into, both accredited and, and sometimes um, and unaccredited. And so over that period, I became more and more disillusioned with single deals. And I learned a lot because I transitioned from being a real estate person or a finance person to becoming slowly but surely a tech or product person. And that took a long time, that, that sort of learning process. Um, and at the at, and I just became more and more worried about sort of one deal going bad. And, you know, I learned if you, if you do 100 deals, or we did, let's say, 50, 44, let's say 50, you could have one of those deals go bad and people could lose 2% of their money if they were pooled. Or 2% of people could lose all their money if they're not pooled. Mm -hmm. And so it was, a, I, I thought it was a very brittle structure. And I, back then, which was almost laughable now in retrospect, you know, I thought in 2014 or 15 or that there was going to be a recession again. And so I was, you know, scarred from 2008. So I, so I basically was spent a lot of time trying to build a platform to be more recession resilient. So we departed from individual deals and that was like a very contentious de decision. There was a lot of the contention internally. People thought that might be wrong or they thought it was wrong. And then we lost a half of our investors. Half of our investors said, no, no, we want to do deals. We like deals. So we lost a lot of customers in that process. 
but I, I'm, I, I'm really glad we did. And we moved to basically being a, um, into a fund or pooled strategy or, or a diversified investor. And that's, that's been a, um, giant advantage, especially now. And so the business model, as you guys pivot, um, uh, and I don't know what it would have been on the first iteration where it's deal centric, but as you become more of an asset manager, fund manager, mm -hmm. is your um, compensation and structure and incentives aligned with the same as any traditional you know, private equity allocator where they're getting a, a couple percent on the, the assets under management and then some sort of a carry after a, a baseline return to the investors? Or how do you guys think about um, running that business, get, getting the oxygen that is revenue? Yeah, yeah. So we transitioned, yeah, we went from being a, really a sponsor to being a private equity fund manager, essentially allowing investors to invest in effectively real estate private equity and then later, you know, private credit and then venture capital. And our model has been take a, a regional real estate and our credit is a 1% asset management fee. So half of what is normal in real estate and no carried interest. And so our fee structure is dramatically less than normal real estate, private equity, real estate world. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they all love that too, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> who, are, who are these guys doing this? <laughs> people don't really like, our investor doesn't really understand. They, they look at it like, well, why are you so much higher than Vanguard's, you know, 15 BIPs? Yeah. You know, Vanguard is not nothing like what we're doing, but that's their, so the individual customer doesn't appreciate the difference. And then the, the real estate industry doesn't really know. They think of 2 and 20 as normal. Um, but that's that's where we we were until 201920 and then we actually vertically integrated and we took in house the real estate um, part of the business too and we launched real estate operating platforms where rather than partnering with real estate companies rather than joint venturing which we were doing a lot of joint venture equity we decided to vertically integrate and have our own real estate platforms Right. Okay. So then are those operating companies paid and, and I don't mean to get overly, no, uh, you know, but I'm a finance guy, I can't help myself. Mm -hmm. So the, the real estate opcos, if you will, uh, let's, are they doing single deals or are they executing on broad strategies across multiple properties? Are there, are there multiple real estate codes? How's that all look? So we formed, um, I think three or four, I'm sure I think how many sort of real estate operating platforms we hired up. We ended up with about 100 people, so we ended up building out a fairly significant real estate operating platform. And they each one has these, we have a multi we had a multifamily team, multifamily real estate operating platform team, an industrial um, operating team that basically buys and manages industrial. Then we have a built for rent, which is our biggest. We launched built for rent in 2019, and uh, we have a lending platform, and then we have. Um, development or urban urban development so we we ended up building a fairly sizable real estate operating platform and and that had sort of i think two advantages for us one is it gave us a lot more control over the real estate and then two um you know the real estate sponsor real estate operator typically gets paid some fees plus a carried interest or a promote of 20 percent or you know, you, you can vary over the hurdle. And we yep. basically took that in-house 
kept the fees. We get paid sort of normal asset management and real estate fees, but no carried interest. <laughs> so we have no carried interest at the fund level, no carried interest at the real estate level. And so I think we've cut the cost of investing in the real estate by a huge, huge, huge amount, 50, more than 50%. probably, mm-hmm. And that I think over time will start to have compounding higher returns than is normal for real estate. Uh, well, look, look at the equivalent of the 12-1B trailer for your mutual fund and how people will say like, hey, don't do mutual funds, go into the ETFs because over the duration, you're going to lose XYZ. I mean, this that's a basis point conversation. You're talking about a 20% carry on the fund and then maybe it's at least a 20% promote to the sponsor. Both of those gone and your fees are below market on the, the fund company and probably, I'm guessing, market on the, the real estate opcos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit of uh, opportunity there for the investor. Yeah, they don't. They don't. I mean, most investors don't know anything about that kind of stuff, and so they don't see it and under, you know, understand it yet. But I think we only really got to the sort of scale of it in the last couple of years, and then the market turned. So I think it's not going to be visible and appreciated by the market for a while. Probably another probably half a decade, or even ten years from now, people look back and be like, "Wait, wait a second, what's happening here?" But it's it's you're not in the near term, you know, fees aren't what matters. What matters is like capital markets and interest rates and cap rates. Yeah, all of which we'll get into. But then talk to me about what you said just a minute back, which is like the the tech and and product centric kind of mindset and, and changing your uh, vantage point away from kind of deal by deal real estate guy into building a platform and a consumable technology product. Um, that seems like a huge shift, but then there's something underlying that if if your investors, I'm a real estate guy, I'm a deal guy, right? So like mm-hmm. I'm going to be all about like, okay, what's the untre- what's the uh, cap on costs, untrended cap on costs? How much mm-hmm. leverage are you guys taking? What assumptions mm-hmm. are going into your opex and your rent, your rent growth? What's the terminal cap rate? And kind of get to like, oh mm-hmm. god, it seems like a good deal. Sounds like you're building a product to speak to a different market who doesn't yet appreciate the fact that you've ripped out all of these fees to give them something uh, pretty unique. So like, how do you, how do you think about that tech, that product and that marketing message to be successful on what sounds like a really novel strategy candidly? Yeah. I mean, that was the kind of the most difficult part was like, was, I mean, I, I had previously had, I don't know, 12 or some years of experience in real estate and finance, blah, blah, blah. And then I went into tech as a, as a, I, w- I worked in tech briefly way back, but I was a, you know, a business analyst and I had to learn a lot and the, actually learning and changing kind of what you're good at is, is that's been the biggest gift really of, of going into Fundrise has been expanding my, my, um, just my world where I would have otherwise been a deal guy. I got to be something different and that I think has been wonderful and that was also a very uh, hard learning curve I, I I tell people it wasn't the learning that was the hard part it was the unlearning that was the hardest like mm. a lot of the things in real estate that we take for as facts are not true in tech and you know it's un, unintuitive so I'd unlearn a lot of things and that and that was like, you know, you sort of don't unlearn it at first. You get smacked in the face a lot. 
uh, on the way to, f to finally actually get taught the lessons. And, and in the tech world, you call that product or product management, product development. Um, that's mostly what I got, you know, decent of that. And then, you know, digital marketing. And I know a little bit about the tech, but, you know, it's, I luckily have good team members that when we get down to like the, you know, the, the backend builds, but I, I know I've now been doing building fundrise and at a scaled level for over a decade. So I know a lot about, you know, what it takes to build, you know, iOS apps, Android apps and websites and have millions of users and tens of millions of dollars in digital marketing. So, I mean, so I've, I've learned a lot. I, I know a decent amount at this point. And that's, that's what gave me the confidence to go into venture capital because I, I feel like I have um, a pretty good handle on a lot of the key aspects of what it takes to basically build a tech company. Mm -hmm. well, and we'll get into to it's popularized, right? No, no, no. That's a, <laughs> that was a concept we came up with way back when that we ended up mothballing. It was uh, okay. What is the VC platform? Is it also just through Fundrise? It's through Fundrise. We have the Fundrise Innovation Fund, and that okay. invests in you know mid to late stage tech companies. Okay. Um, Private but the thing you just ad admitted to, if you will, uh, that, like some of the hardest learning was the unlearning. Is there anything that you can think of that you particularly needed to be clubbed over the head multiple times to oh, have it God, sink in? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, like Please share. <laughs> I mean, so like the, the all the original deals we did were like pretty. I don't say extraordinary real estate deals, but definitely they weren't, you know, garden style apartments in the suburbs. They weren't like boring real estate. They were like urban rejuvenation. They had like, you know, we were, this is a different era. So if you go, if you go back to like the 2010s, like it was about urban redevelopment and you're, we're buying these like investing and buying these like really cool buildings in like, Bushwick or LA Arts District or, you know, H Street and, and, and kind of breathing new life into them. There was architecture and there was like city involvement. I mean, we did a project where like there was a TIF and there was a, um, there was a grant from the city and Rahm Emanuel, who was mayor of, the, of Chicago at the time was involved. It was a really complicated project. We just did, we just did all these really, jewel box execution real estate deals. I mean, one of the ones we did was um, the World Trade Center um, re, re bond offering with three World Trade Center. And we, you know, we did, we did just really special real estate deals because I thought that's what mattered because I'm a real estate guy originally. Mm -hmm. so turns out like this is not what matters, total waste of time, big mistake. I, that took me, I mean, it may have taken me literally eight years unlearn that just i just couldn't believe how little people who weren't in real estate cared about the real estate that's fascinating uh i can appreciate that <laughs> you're like wait my target market doesn't care that we have beautiful architecture only i do <laughs> and then yeah and then if i do that's bad like you shouldn't do what you want to do basically you become a servant to the customer, maybe nicely a steward, but mostly a servant. And whatever you want is irrelevant. Mm. 
is irrelevant. And, that, and real estate people have a lot. Uh, I mean, everybody has ego, but but like real estate people like to do deals, big deals with, you know, shiny pictures and shiny names. And, you know, it just none of that stuff matters to our customer. It's like, and, and those things end up getting overvalued by real estate people because that's just how real estate people think. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to bounce back to the the architecture that you laid out for for mm -hmm. me on the you know real estate co taking no carry and having market fees the fund co taking no carry and having market fees and if I marry that with what I think I'm hearing you say is like hey maybe we should do something that people understand and resonates with them and in a structure where I don't have to pay a promote to the fund and I don't have to pay a promote to the developer, maybe you've got a competitive advantage in call it B2R just by virtue of the fact that you don't have to pay all of those sort of historically normal fees to the, the people at the, at the deal structure and, and it can instead uh, pass that through to the investor. Does that show up as a competitive advantage when you go to actually execute in the local markets? I think so. And beta R is so new that it's like, it, it's actually, I mean, this is maybe always true, but what's mattered most over the last 36 months is the macro, you know, 2020, it was all macro. It was all pandemic 2021. It was all macro. It was all, you know, stimulus 2022 it was all macro. It was all interest rates. 2023, it's still interest rates. And like everything else is so secondary to that. Like it, so it so it's like the sort of tactical alpha you have at the you know fund level or fee structure or deal level. I mean, it just gets swamped. This is what I learned this in two thousand eight, and it's just like here it is again. Like the micro gets swamped by the tsunami that is the macro. Mm -hmm. Well, I was trying to go to macro later, but let's go there. Um, you know, it's worth stating it's ten ten October tenth, twenty twenty three. So. You know, Ukraine and Russia, Hamas just went <laughs> nuclear is not the right word, but uh, made a big move against Israel. There's now what appears to be a full-blown war unfolding there. We're projected to hit 50 trillion of debt uh, up from 26 trillion now by 2030. COVID, we put $9 trillion into the system. Money supplies up, what, 29% since then. Inflation, at least 9% for a good while. And we've still got like $17 trillion of cash uh, in the banks down maybe uh, $700 billion from the peak, but, but still probably $3 trillion above excess. Loans aren't repaying. Your, your best lender is your existing lender. There's a ton of uncertainty that's slowing down. All the transactions and bid-ask spreads are, are prevalent. Mm -hmm. um, the 10-year, what, up 100 basis points from a year ago, up 400 basis points from three years ago, and primes up what, five, 500 basis points in 18 months. And, oh, yeah, we've got a couple of banks that have failed. So the backdrop is uh, anything but rosy. So what, what are you guys doing, seeing, thinking about the kind of macro picture in, in today's world? Yeah, I mean, I've been preaching recession for a long time. And uh, people didn't believe me, still don't believe me, Generally, people still there's still not a consensus. It's mostly a consensus. There won't be a recession. I think there will be, um, and it's going to go from bad to worse. And the backdrop you're describing mostly hasn't caused um, that much pain in the real economy yet. Mm -hmm. And so, but it will, and eventually always does. 
And so for us, like, I tell the team, like, you can't, you have to be able to play offense and defense. Like, a great team is a well rounded team. And so part of our business, part of what we're doing for our investors and on day to day is just playing defense. You know, we, we're lucky because we didn't, we didn't have the same sort of like, um, we didn't have like preferred hurdles to hit our, hit our 20% incentive mm. you know, profit participation. So our average leverage is 50%, you know, so 50% leverage, um, you know, we own, I don't know, 20,000 residential units in the Sunbelt and industrial, like, you know, we we're positioned well for what I think is coming, which is going to be more of the down and worse. And, um, and it's going to be ugly. It's going to get way uglier before it gets better. And the real estate industry, including myself, like we, we kept trying to kick the can, hope it would get better. And it's just gotten worse. And it, it seems like it's starting to get kind of you, only in the last few weeks, right? You're starting to really see capitulation from the markets. And the, you know, the long end of the curve is starting to spike and, and, and investors are starting to realize that this is like, the higher for longer is going to basically, there's no escape from it essentially. And so mm. it's, it's going to be, it's going to be bad. And I, I always tell people like, yeah, that's just like, it's part of the game. You know, it goes, things go up, things go down, things go up again. So we're about to go through a, a tough time nationally. Well, and I know fundraise, as you just explained, has gone away from kind of deal by deal, but I'll bet you there's guys like me that haven't figured that out. So you guys are still inundated with deal flow. Um, some of the anecdotal stuff that I've seen, and I'm, I'm putting this out just as perhaps like canary in a coal mine and, and kind of let's see what you may see in terms of the impending, uh, distress or pending distress. Um, you know, there's, and this, this goes back to early, 2023, there was a group that, and don't hold me to exact numbers here, but they bought a multifamily value at asset in Houston and got $45 million of debt on it, uh, floating rate debt. And they hit their business plan on time on budget in terms of just doing a value add renovation to all the units and pushing rents, which effectively doubled the NOI. And they had a $20 million cash in refinance once they came out the other side. And you know, I think that particular group was actually able to pull it off, but there's a lot of guys out there on floating rate debt that assumed they were going to perm out at, let's just call it a four and a half percent rate or maybe even lower today. They're looking at six and three quarters, six and a half. Um, and the only way that works is if you were like you just mentioned on your deals at 50% leverage going in. And as you and I both know for the developer who's deal focused, who's looking to hit his promote, they tend to play with fire, crank up the leverage to what they think is reasonable, but with 500 basis points shifts in the Fed funds rate, like what people think is reasonable has changed quickly, right? There's construction loans out there right now, private debt construction loans that are at 12% because they were, you know, 700 over when silver was effectively zero. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's really going to be ugly. We, we were 50% leverage plus we had, had like a lot of cash. I mean, I think at the, you know, I, it was early 2022 when I was like, started to like sound the alarm. And at that point then we had 30% cash, 30% liquid or liquid, including maybe like, you know, public REITs and stuff. And, and it's, you know, and, and, um, 
you know, I wish I was 100% cash, <laughs> right? It, it, it's most funds, most investors don't hold that much liquidity. And so even with 50% leverage or um, around that, like we, we still had to do some um, pay downs or like we still had to pay, you know, a couple of our lenders down by 5 million here, 5 million there, because it's like um, the, the debt surface coverage ratios like don't cover when you have, uh, you know, your, your, your floating rate debt is 200 over 550, 750, mm-hmm. 1.2 DSCR, 1.2 um, coverage. And so you end up having to cover at a nine or 10. Yep. And that's like um, most sponsors can't do that. And, and so it's, it's um, everybody, basically almost everybody is now just playing the, you know, hold them game, just, you know, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. And, um, you know, what we're going to start seeing, we're seeing it some, we're going to start seeing like people not able to. And that is like the, once that starts happening, that's like going to start a repricing. <clears throat> and I, it's, I don't know. I mean, the, the action, we don't really know if there's going to be a global problem there's the thing about macro is that just it can it's all connected and it, and things that don't seem connected can matter i, I mean this last if you go back to the last time 08 you know you had a european debt crisis in in all in the peripheral countries and that almost caused a serious problem you can only imagine those countries have a worse problem than they used to have like that could come back and affect U.S. capital markets. China, mm-hmm. China seems to be in a recession, and so so it's just there's just so many factors out there that are negative, and yet the stock market is still close to all time highs. So it's so it seems like there's I think it seems like there's trouble to come, and you know you're when there's trouble best thing you can do really reality is okay you can buy but mostly you need to be prepared for it (laughs) so your offensive moves now is just get liquid yeah we're we're gonna yeah i mean staying liquid getting liquid and and we're buying a little bit on the edges we have a couple industrial deals closing into the year we have um some bill for rent we're still buying we're still buying we're buying I think the, so far this year, we, I bet you we bought $400 million of real estate okay. so far this year, I would say. And we've done a couple hundred million dollars of lending. So $600 million of do- dollars at the door. That's, you know, that's probably more of more offense than most players out there. Mm-hmm. You wish you could buy the whole world. Mm-hmm. So... Anything specific that you you guys are seeing? I mean, I get the thrust of what you're saying at the at the macro um, in terms of you know the move in the the indices and floating rate borrowers and you know a nine and a half debt yield, ten debt yield, and the refinance not being feasible, and so you will see capitulation. And when you see capitulation, there'll be new comps that that trend downward, and that can that can set off uh, 
you know, negative feedback loop where valuations are dropping, which tests new covenants, which force more liquidations, which sets new covenants. I, mm-hmm. I get all that. Mm-hmm. Specific deals. Have you seen anything that you think is a really good anecdote for what's on the horizon? We've been doing a lot of lending into that. So people who need cash in. Yeah, perfect. Mm-hmm. We've done, I don't know how many deals this year. I'm say bridge that. to bridge stuff. Well, mostly pref. So we, okay. somebody has, uh, let's see, I think of deals we've done. We've had, they have a bank loan and they have to, and they basically need like 20% kind of like resizing, mm-hmm. pay down, whatever you want to call it, or just, uh, oh, there's a hole, a gap in their capital stack. Yep. So we've done, I'm going to say like, I don't know if it's six or 10 of those deals. And where it's a really good sponsor, really good deal. And there's a capital need. We fill it. We filled it. And we've done that. And we've always, and that's actually where we started in 2012, 13, 14. We, we, is this pref. And I love, I love, it's always multifamily pref. So we just do residential, multifamily, B to R, pref in that gap. And it's, and it's like, um, you know, sponsors who come to us who we know say, like, we've never done pref before. And they tell us, they mark up the term sheet. I'm like, uh-huh. Well, let me know if you have somebody else who will do that. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, 60 days later, they come back to us. They're like, okay. Um, I didn't they, they They think PREF, the sponsor thinks PREF is like equity with a cap return. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and PREF these days is like a mezzanine loan. And there's a, but a lot of sponsors aren't used to PREF. And are you saying making the distinction there in terms of your rights to cure and, and take control of the asset? Mm-hmm. Control, yeah. rights to step in, rights to pay down, rights to, you know, basically protect your interest because the sponsor, I mean, the, I have a, a pretty skeptical view of sponsors, essentially, like most sponsors will do what they can get away with. And so, um, you know, I, I don't. I always start with a sponsor, assuming they're going to do the worst thing they can get, they can do. Yeah. And then, and then if they, if they don't, I'm pleasantly surprised. Yeah. So there's two things that come up there. Uh, one, when you get into that position and I'm, I'll stipulate that you're attaching it, maybe 80% of the historic basis. Um, and, Maybe it's a, a 14 or, or so coupon, mm-hmm. maybe all accrual, some current pay and some accrual. Um, feel free to sharpen those up where I might be off. But what's left for the common equity? Is it is it basically converting into a hope note? Um, yeah, so typically, actually, these days, you were attaching lower, I would say, in, in the around 70 because um, the senior lender wants to get to basically needs to get to around 50. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're 55 or 50 or 45 and we're 20%. So we're going to 65 or 70 or 72 maybe, but it's like, so, and so in, in our sort of yield on cost, gosh, where would it be? I mean, I would say it was in the low sixes before, like a few months ago, when I thought that like values were in the mid fives and we were in the, we were, you know, in the low sixes and now values are probably closer to six, maybe. I mean, it depends on, depends on what we mean by that. 
So I don't know exactly. Now I think prep would be really hard to do. It's just everything is priced. The recent spike in long end of the curve is is a killer. A real deal. So, so, well, okay. Let's stay with the first scenario, and then I'll start asking you about the long end of the curve and the relationship between cap rates and interest rates because it's clear you're conversant in that. But say you attached it 72. Uh-huh. And the common equity is behind you, and you're in, let's just say, 14. Mm-hmm. And then they're they're paying their bank. Mm, if they if it's if they got perm, what they're 200 over the tenure at whatever time they they locked. If they're yeah. if they're floating, they're maybe 300 over SOFR. So it's still mm-hmm. kind of expensive mm-hmm. down on the bottom. Mm-hmm. If you guys run that pro forma out and go, okay. We're going to liquidate. It's a three three year deal or five year deal coterminous mm-hmm. with the senior, mm-hmm. and you go great. Let's look at the pro forma terminal value, pay out the sales commissions and closing costs, pay out the debt, pay us and our accruals. What's left for the the GP and his partners? Is there is there anything? Yeah, it's, it's funny though because so that pref structure you're describing that situation, we've done eighty seven pref checks into multifamily mm-hmm. over the last 10 years. So, and I, and, 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 um, a lot of them, the performance said the sponsor is going to lose half their equity sponsor is going to lose like a lot of money. Um, and of course, every single time the sponsor didn't. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and sometimes the like, sponsor made out like a bandit and we were just getting our 12 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, now I, I, it's yeah. I mean, like the on paper, a sponsor is going to lose some of their, some of their principal, um, and how much they lose is really going to depend on where cap rates are in three years. But and, you've actually got it showing a loss of principal, not not even just no return, but they might actually come up a bit short on, on yeah. getting that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's our, our underwriting assumes yeah. that like that, and it's easy for us to underwrite that and. And then, like typically in the, in the in the past, where we've had deals where there's been like um, distress, the sponsor usually shows up and says, "Kind of more time." And we our funds are evergreen funds, right? We don't we're not closed under funds. We don't take a current interest, so we don't have to like turn the money. So normally, they we just say, "Yeah, you know, if you're going to pay us a 14, like you have all the time in the world, right? As long as we're in the money, like we're okay with going longer." And then usually with a sponsor, I have this. Personally, I believe if you have time on your side in real estate, you'll be okay. I agree. And if time's not on your side, you're going to get hosed. Just, there's like it's really rare time works for works out for you if you if you have short on time. So my my personal belief is we're not going into super high interest interest rate environment three years from now. I think that's like that's I think that's not likely. I think we're going into a um, I think we'll re- we'll probably roll over within the next few years to a moderate, inf- you know, interest rate environment, um, and so cap rates will be a fucking five and a half. Will seem like a fine cap rate. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we're going to a world where cap rates are six and a half in the long term. Um, mm-hmm. If we are, like man, most of the real estate industry is going to see, you know, I don't know, like bloodbath. I mean, just do the math. There's, let's say $20 trillion of commercial real estate, including multifamily. 
And at six and a half caps, that means that that's $10 trillion in losses, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Like half, 50% losses, maybe more. Because mm-hmm. if, if, if like residential is six and a half, office is at like a double that. Office goes to zero. Office equity goes to zero. And half the, half the, I mean, it's just $10 trillion in losses in real estate, like, and that's just relatively, you know, I don't know how much you're in the private equity world and lever loan industry and go down the list. Like there's lots of corporate debt. And so you're talking about such a huge amount of losses in the system that just drives a recession and that recession will drive down interest rates again. That's why I'm, I just don't believe in the, the narrative that we're going to be in this environment that interest rates stay, you know, the treasury stay at five in the long term. I'm just, that's just to me, country, countries in such a recession at that point because the you know, federal debt and corporate debt, you can't, they just, it just, country is not, not growing. It can't carry it. It can't yeah, carry it. it. Can't carry yeah. it. It's just, it's, you're it's you're putting up like 12% of GDP to just do debt service. Yeah. And so that's a downturn, a recession. Yeah. And that's going to, and then, you know, people say, well, that's stagflation. Then we have stagflation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think so because I don't think the government's going to print any more money. I think, I think you can't have stagflation if government stops printing money. And then the question is, well, they, do they start printing money again? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where it's possible, but I don't think so. Yeah. Well, if we go back to the cap yeah. rate conversation. And look, I'm no, uh, I'm no economist and I'm certainly no expert. And if, if I've learned anything from, call it just before 2020 until now, it's that I really don't know much. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I for sure didn't see COVID spiking residential home values. I for mm-hmm. sure didn't see the low mortgage rates actually supporting high home values currently, like mm-hmm. even in, a, in an environment where rates are mm-hmm. seven and a half, eight percent, and you still see limited supply and, and mm-hmm. relatively stable home prices. Um, but, you know, Peter Lineman's going to be on Willie Walker's uh, webinar tomorrow. And, and I pretty much watch that one every time it comes out. And he's got a paper that I think dates back to 2020 around the correlations between treasuries and cap rates. And you know, just like a 0.68. And his thing is like, look, there's a lot of things that correlate that loosely and it's really not that telling. And, and the, the thing that he puts forward as potentially more telling is the relationship between commercial mortgage flows and the growth in GDP. And if commercial mortgage flows are exceeding the rate of growth, and it's, it's it's likely the change in commercial mortgage flows versus the change in GDP, then you're going to see cap rate compression. And and the alternative, which clearly we are entering a cycle where commercial mortgage flows are declining, um, is also true when there's when the flows of commercial mortgage are lesser than the, the GDP growth, then you'll see cap rate expansion. For him, it's all about flow of funds. And, you know, you're you're on the side of the story where you're like, look, I'm low levered. I'm investing for value. I'm investing for duration. Sure, you'd love to go out and and snap up the six and a half cap, but you've got if we think inflation isn't yet dead, you've got an asset that's indexed to inflation. You've got all the benefits of your interest rates up, write offs, and depreciation. 
And you basically got a bond that if you actually held it for 30 years and watched your 2 or 3% rent growth and then came out the other side and said, okay, how did this bond do relative to my 30-year U.S. Treasury at 4.6%, which is what the comparison everybody wants to make is that there's got to be a spread between treasuries and cap rates to justify for the risk premium. Mm-hmm. I... You know, it's kind of a long-winded thing here, but I'm not sure I buy it. I think that the market's pretty intelligent and pretty capable of going, I'm going to buy this because I know in five years, A, replacement cost is going to be way higher. B, my rents are going to be way higher. C, I expect rates are going to revert back down and I'm going to be able to improve my free flow cash. And, you know, like the market's pretty rational. I don't, I, I place a reasonable amount of equity in Right now, we're doing two JV equity raises for multifamily development, which you can imagine is difficult. But I'm getting a ton of these guys who are like, hey, if the 10 years at 4.8, you need to be at a 6.8 cap on costs. And I can just tell you categorically, there are no 6.8 cap on costs, new developments in Southern California, unless somebody's basically paying you for the land and you're getting your labor and materials at some substantial discount because maybe you're vertically integrated or something like that. Um, I don't know. That's a bit of a rant, but what are your thoughts around like the relationship between cost of debt and cap rates. Do you think it's linear like some people do? Yes. Okay. Interesting. I think Lineman is like selling what the industry wants to buy. Uh-huh. And like the industry's in denial. Uh-huh. I love it. <laughs> um he, he when he describes like also a separate thing, which is like um I'm trying to remember the economist Minsky or something who who talks about flow of funds, but essentially like more debt causes prices to go up and and it's a feedback loop and less right. debt causes it to go down. That's a separate it's a separate problem and related, but and both are happening right now. But yeah, I mean it's, it's if if treasuries at five, nobody's buying real estate at less than five, and they're probably wanting it to be at least six. I mean, I don't know in a world if it's seven, but that's a, it's going to have huge effects on real estate pricing. And and anybody who's saying otherwise, it's just you know, I don't I don't know exactly why they would think of that. I mean, it may, would make no sense. Well, so we can talk about the math of that, but he, the flow of funds is only part of the story. It's a huge part of the story, but the flow of funds is 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 downstream of interest rates. Like it's a result of higher interest rates or interest rate changes. Yes, that's 100% accurate, right? As the rates change, so do the flows. That's why everybody got these massive cash out refinances after COVID, right? The treasury's mm-hmm. at like 0.3. Oh, okay, let's uh, let's go get a 40-year fixed rate loan from HUD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, look, it's 118% of cost. Okay, cool. We'll take that. Yeah, yeah. so... So, I mean, I, I think it's I mean, the real estate industry is not a good place to look because they because they're there's um, they're so biased by their sort of like their their position. And so it's like, um, you know, they, they're basically selling their book or talking their book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's I think it's more it's more likely that. Yeah, for some period, I mean, there are no such things as a six and a half or seven cap rate, and and almost anywhere in America, that's not a real thing. That 
with the institutional investors saying that, what they're really saying is, I'm not going to do deals, but I'm not going to admit it. That's right. Thank you. That is exactly it. And that like, takes a while to figure out. <laughs> Speaking of like being beat over the head enough times to figure out what's going on. For me, it's been, you know, people give you all kinds of reasons that like your deal's no good. And it's really not that. They're just not trading right now. Yeah. And, and, that, and just to be sympathetic to them, because I, I have a little bit understand their seat too, is that like um, they don't want to admit it either. They don't mm-hmm. want to, they, they, if they told their entire team, you know, whatever, take a big, shop that's got hundreds of investment professionals you told them you know we're not doing deals for two years right <laughs> that team would start to lose their mind they would start freaking out everybody's actually better off pretending even and even though it it's not true like that's a on management this is something i have we have a i have a, almost 300 team members at fundrise and like they hate being told bad news hate it they really would rather me to just tell them everything great is great 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 um because whenever you tell them bad news they want you to they want you then to tell them like like the the conclusion Mm -hmm. well then how's it go and and like what does it mean for me Mm -hmm. and and you're like nobody knows what's going to (laughs) happen you know if like it's it's we're going to go through a period of 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 serious turbulence and people want to know there was the conclusion if you can't give them the conclusion then they just get upset and you're just in a crisis you're much better off carrying on carrying forward than fretting about it Hmm. that's interesting um you're putting a lot on the table and i'm trying to cherry pick from the things that i think will will fit the best um 300 people. I was actually looking for that before trying to figure out how many people are on the team. And, um, you know, you sort of talked about like tech and product fit and probably to Mm -hmm. a certain extent, understanding, uh, what some of my friends would call like product market fit. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. you're also a self, uh, confessed real estate guy, deal guy, right? You're doing all of these esoteric jewel box deals and, and realizing all of that might not work. Um, but in the real estate world, as we're currently discussing, there are cycles and there are times when you might not transact. There's a time for risking capital and leaning in, and there's a time for protecting capital. And those cycles are very natural. Everybody has the same data. Everybody's trying their flying their own individual plane with the same instruments in all the planes, right? Oh, let's mm-hmm. go. Let's go now. That's why you get these over, over corrections and, and, all of that, but in a real estate business, uh, but for the largest institutions that might be public or, you know, really have battleship war chests, uh, a team of 300 people would be insane. Uh, I read up a bit on your, your father's business. I'm betting he never came anywhere near (laughs) or currently has nothing near 300, uh, People, how do you think about scale and overhead and and managing human resource in a marketplace that inevitably ebbs and flows? Even for you guys, I'm sure that it flow of funds in and out um, has a cyclical effect, and um, you know that's a pretty big monster to feed every month. I don't know what a payroll of 300 people would look like, but it's rather large. Yeah, we we just have you know enough assets uh, that we're close to break even um 
But the, um, the, this was something I learned or unlearned going from becoming a real estate person to a tech or product person was, um, real estate people are not operators. They're transaction or deal people. So, you know, a typical real estate operator, even if you're at a, you know, Starwood, I mean, you basically do deals. You might do three deals a year. You might do two deals a year. You might do five deals a year, but you're going to do some number of deals and you'll have a deal team and a deal team will have like a few people on it, you know, three, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you have some like, you know, um, service, service providers internally who, who know about construction or capital markets, but it's, it's relatively small number of people who are the deal managers or project managers. And then there's a few support people in the organization that handle uh, leasing or, or, um, you know, HR or finance. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's typically a three to 12 person shop. It's a small organization. And, and the way real estate people scale is it's, you know, more or less the same number of people. And instead of doing, you know, a $5 million deal, they do a $20 million deal. And then they do a $50 million deal. And then they do a hundred million dollar deal. And you're Starwood and you want to be doing like $500 million deals. And so it's the exact same, um, you know, matrix or, or, or paradigm with just a bigger denominator. And that's mm -hmm. how real estate people uh, scale. And we, I, I saw that as flawed for a bunch of reasons. I mean, it's not, it's fine for them, but it's not a good fit for us. And, and, you know, if you look at, you know, companies like that do, that make stuff, you know, whether you're, you know, Intel or, or some other, you know, normal company that's public, like they're operating businesses and they have like a factory and they make, you know, they have their people on the factory floor moving things along. And so that's a, it's a really different kind of management and real estate people like aren't typically not good at that mm -hmm. and they're, and they, and they're heavily biased away from it. Cause what happens when you have scale with a tech company or any kind of companies, you, you have to focus on process yep. and the process becomes the most important thing. And the real estate guy will always sacrifice process for the deal. They will throw process out the window and design the deal, you know, a bespoke or, or custom drill box or, you know, whatever it is, it's going to be deal driven. It's not going to be process driven. That's completely crazy, a real estate person. <laughs> and so they're bad at operating, like operating things and management. It's just, it's just both by temperament and by training and then ultimately by how, how they prioritize like their decision making. So, so that's a big difference. And I had to learn that and, and I've, people are process oriented. And then we the kind of real estate we ended up doing as we scaled was real estate that was where process mattered more. That's why we have like multifamily and build for rent because those are more process oriented, efficient, you know, operating businesses rather than like, you know, big office buildings or, you know, any kind of big complex deal is not going to be process driven. But like if you own, if you're Invitation Homes, which you own whatever, 100,000 homes, that's a process-driven business. Hotels are a process-driven business. And so it's a very different kind of organization. And so that's the kind of real estate we buy. And that's the kind of real estate platform we build. And that's, um, 
that and there's just one sort of more important point is that software is good at process mm-hmm. so if you want to say oh we are our, our main competitive advantage is we have ability to build software then you want to go where that is useful and it's useful in things like single family homes multifamily things like that and if you and know how much you've been inside the guts of a single family home operator where they have you know 100 times more software than a multifamily operator who basically doesn't have almost any so and this and and you know not that like those single family platforms have very good software in the software world but yeah. it's, a, it's a joke compared to what google's or or those type of companies have built so it's but it's you have to have it it's a process driven investment class <laughs> and so your your whole thing here is uh by focusing on a scalable process driven product and strategy and knowing that uh, you're not going to abandon the strategy and the scale in favor of that boutique downtown LA arts district city council member on your side, you've been able to uh, uh, secure the revenue refine the process, have enough repeatable process, understand the structure that the 300 people, um, it doesn't prove to be an impediment. It's actually an essential feature of being successful on the strategy. Right. Right. And so that requires us to say no to deals, which is in the, for the first, you know, eight years of our business or even longer, we, we had a hard time doing, <laughs> um, cause you want to stick to your knitting. And, um, and then you, you know, we have been building software inside the real estate. It's another reason why we vertically integrated is that the real estate industry just doesn't know anything about software. This is I mean, almost nothing. And so if we want to build software that replaces people in the process, we have to do that by vertically integrating. You can't have, you know, I go to, if I go to my JV partners that, that I still have from deals that we did 2017, and I say like, here, hey, you know the way you do this thing, I do it differently. And they're like, go, no, go away. So, mm-hmm. but I think software. I mean, you know, not the, the, the software is eating the world. It was going to eat real estate. I'm hoping to be the, um, the you know, the alligator. You know, I want to be. I, I want to be part of the consumption chain that that eats up a lot of the inefficiencies that exist in the business. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Hang on. So now I'm hearing what you were saying before in a completely different way, right? Uh, no, I'm not taking a 20% carry. No, I'm not taking a, a promote on my real estate opco and my fees are market over there and they're one half of what they are on the fund management side. Hey, everybody, uh, come on in because we're focused on a few strategies that we've developed repeatable process for. We've got a competent team who knows how to do that. And oh, by the way, I've got a competitive advantage right out of the gate to get you at least a market level return by virtue of the fact that I've blown out all these fees. And as I scale, I'm going to just eat the whole thing. That's the tech playbook. Yeah. That's, yeah. How, that's how, if you go look at Tesla, that's what they did. They, 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 it's a, it's a Tesla, sorry, um, Netflix did that. They sort of get their foothold into this, into a new industry. And then they go eat the whole thing up with software. And that's like how 
that's how you do it. I'm not doing anything new, but that's what we're doing. People don't see that. They're obsessed. The real people just see all the deals we're doing. I just think about the deals. Yeah. By the way, that would be me. <laughs> I am the guy you keep talking about. Just sort of way more of a, a real estate mindset. I'm aware of all of the uh, process stuff, and we, you know, we use software just a little uh, for Asana for our deal processes and Salesforce for managing CRMs and placement efforts and things like that. But nothing like uh, what you're talking about. So, talk to me about. Um, saying no right like you you were saying like okay here like you stand up a platform like fundrise everybody's like wow these guys are great and i can only imagine you just get overrun with like a million different transaction opportunities i'm sure that still happens to this day what is it taken to like develop the skill to just narrow the focus and know how much of this stuff that comes your way is just distraction Oh, well, it's changed so much. I mean, you're talking about almost the whole cycle we just went through, right, from 20, 2011 to, to now. And so it, it varied. I mean, where, where, we end up, where we ended up in the last, you know, couple of years was like, we're only going to, we're going to go out and buy what we want. Like, don't bring us transactions. This isn't wasting our time. Mm-hmm. Nobody brings you a good transaction, Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. <laughs> I love that. Do Do you follow uh, the real estate philosopher, um, the the guy out of New York? I'm yeah, yeah, here. I know him. Yeah, I, I'm, I, yeah, he's funny. He's super funny. He's written a couple pieces in his newsletter. Like you are never going to find another good deal. Like it's not going to happen that way. You're going to make deals. You're going to create them, right? You're not going to go on COSAR and be like, oh, look, there's a good deal. Or go on LoopNet, there's a good deal. Or to your point, just have somebody call you up and say, hey, I've got a really good deal. Yeah. I'm probably less jaded on that front because I'm that guy who calls you. (laughs) But (laughs) the point is well made. Um, Finding the people, how are you doing that? How do you find, you know eight, nine, and 10 out of the one, one to 10 scale on your team, um, you know, 300 people, like ideally you want a world-class team, you have world-class people. What's your thought process around, you know, avoiding the twos, threes, and fours, maybe weeding out the, the sixes and sevens over time and, and ending up with a team of eight, nine, and 10 high performers. Yeah. I mean that the way I, it's turned out, cause I had a lot of theories and ended up with a conclusion is that you know we hired you know over the probably over the last ten plus years we've hired six hundred people right and there's only three hundred people left like it's and then of the three hundred people there are like it's the Pareto principle like there's eighty twenty that mm-hmm. and there's twenty percent that sixty people who are like just the most productive and then of the 60 people there's another 12 who are like 10x again and so mm-hmm. that prayer principle is a real real or, or you know the 80 20 is a real um uh fact you know they call it power law and, and venture capital but there's a bell curve and um and what i've found is that you know the, those 12 people or those 60 people like i didn't know i i was not like a good at predicting who they're going to be like some of the people who I thought were going to be great ended up not being good. And people who I didn't even notice ended up being world-class. So it's, it's like, um, ultimately I've come to the conclusion that it's only by doing only by 
execution that you really can know and that the, the good talkers, right? The salespeople, like that doesn't mean they're going to be um, good at anything else. <laughs> That's expensive, isn't it? Bringing somebody on and going through the enculturation process, the training process, getting them familiar with the team, building out systems for them, putting them, onboarding them onto all the systems and then going, okay, now let's see what you can do. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe we got definitely, we got better at it. We were really, I was really bad. I mean, I was thinking back of how many, like it was much worse hit, hit ratio than it is now, but I don't, I don't, I, I also come to the conclusion you can only, it's much better growing people than, than trying to go buy people. Mm -hmm. So the people who are the best people here are people who really like grew up like, you know, the people, there's people here who started when they were 22 and they're 33 and they're just like superheroes now. And they were like kids. <laughs> uh -huh. And, and like, so growing is, especially because the way we are is so different than the real estate industry. Like, like um, people show up here from real estate shops and they're just obsessed with the deal. I'm like, don't tell me about the deal. Like I already, I already know the deal. It's a, it's a big waste of time because mm -hmm. they're all the same. That's right. It's just a deal. Yeah. I mean, like we've, we've looked at and we have like database, like, you know, with full performa, like thousands of deals, like thousands. And I'm like, I just couldn't, I mean, like, and you, you can look at a deal and know it's a good deal in like a hot second. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't take, I'm like, it doesn't take that much. Um, I try, I try, I try to change, train the team. Like, just get rid of the bad deals. Like, I don't, don't, you don't know what the good deal is. Like you'll do, you've done probably a lot of deals. Like the deal that killed it wasn't always the deal you thought was going to kill it. That's right. And so what your job is to not do bad deals. And then the good deals are tried to driven by like, it's like a, you know, it's almost like you get a free option, like, like a call. Mm -hmm. and, totally. you, and you can exit the call to your advantage. Like the, all of a sudden the steel is just pricing like crazy. You're like, okay, I'm selling, but otherwise you can just hang out. And so it's killing the bad deals, but everybody in the real estate industry is like obsessed with trying to, to pick deals. And like, there is no such thing. It's, it's not at scale. There's no such thing as picking good deals. It's only eliminating bad deals. <laughs> and so part of that ties back into the macro, which is when the macro is all screwed up, there really isn't a, a good deal unless the returns are just exceptional because the, the water logs, if you will, best word I can come up with right now, uh, nature of like the underpinnings of the deal are so oppressive to returns that it's kind of like, yeah, you're not going to tell your team you're not doing anything for two years, but like avoiding bad deals in that time period is, yeah, it's like borrowings at super low leverage, values are uncertain, cap rates are high, like the likelihood that this is a bad deal, pretty high. Why don't we just avoid that one? I think I know what you're saying, but I might actually be saying slightly different, which is I the bad deals were 2021, mm. not now. Mm-hmm. Like, now you think there's some good deals to be at. Yeah, on a pure macro, right? You're, you're like, any deal you do now is at a 30% discount to what you would have done in 2021, maybe 50% discount, but only a big discount. And um, if you just get rid of the bad deals, like 
sure, they might get worse, but it's pretty good. And if you did in 2021, like you could get rid of the bad deals, but you're still going to have lost a lot of money from mm-hmm. that or 2022 pick, whatever, you know, it, it, it shifted. I would say late 2021 is when it sort of peaked. So to the macros, you, you know, not to state the obvious, but you, you sell when it's high and you buy when it's low and now yeah, it's sure. low. But, yeah. is, but as you're, as you're seeing, there's nobody buying. There's no institutional money. All the smart money, they're supposed to be so smart. And I raise money from individuals and those, they aren't as intelligent and sophisticated as the big money. And I'm watching the big money all lost. They all invested like crazy in 2021 and they're not investing now. So I, like, I don't believe they're smart. That's just like the story they have to tell to raise their LP. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So, but on the 30% discount, are you seeing that? And look, I'm very San Diego and, and West Coast centric in my worldview, um, just by virtue of where I spend my time. But, you know, we just saw four, three cap rate go out uh, probably six weeks ago and they bought the entity. So if you normalize for, they would have bought fee and got reassessed, uh, it's probably a four, six. And then another one just came through maybe 10 days ago, smaller deal. Um, full value at rehab and it sold, I think at a four, nine cap, like we're, we're still in this, like, okay, massive supply imbalance, uh, good jobs formation, good diversity of, of industry clusters, you know, kind of inflection point for San Diego, I'd argue moving towards like primary market status. Um, I'm not seeing it, but like you're, you've got a much more national, uh, you sort of purview and, and I take you at your word, but I, I just sort of have to ask to make it explicit. Are you guys seeing that like 30% drop off? Cause I've heard it from other people as well. I mean, yeah. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Let me just rearticulate it. So what's happening, there are some buyers who are willing to pay in the, you know, cap rates in the fours or pay like not as low as it was in 2021, not as low, but like, you know, not as ch- cheap as you would think. Right, and those buyers still in the market. They're like maybe one in ten buyers are like that, and nine mm-hmm. in ten are are bottom feeders. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I'm starting to see transactions available. You know, so if they're paying in the mid fours, I think you can start. You're starting to see transactions in the mid fives, and going north. So, if you were going to say, okay, I'm just going to hang out until 2024, someone's going to like go on vacation for three months or four, and then come back, like you're going to be able to buy in the high fives, mid to high fives, pretty regularly starting next year. And then their institutional investors are not going to do it, by the way. They're going to say, well, we want a high sixes. And then they won't transact. And the only there'll be some people who transact, but mostly when they can get the good deals, they're going to, they're going to be on the sidelines because they're waiting for consensus. They're a herd. They're a sheep. And so mm-hmm. if, I, if, I, if we have some capital, I'm a buyer and the high, high fives to low sixes. And I think that's, yes, that's, that's for real. Um, and then some, I think it's, and, and even those prices, I think you can get better, better deals. And if you were, if you were in the um, credit markets, which is where we're more active. So the private credit in a market and that door is one I've wanted to open for a while because you've you've referenced it a couple of times. I don't know for you if you're saying just private debt in the real estate space or if you're talking about making private credit for operating companies. And then I also know you mentioned the innovation fund. Can you tell me a little bit about those two? 
you know, sort of aspects of the company? Yeah, I mean, the, the two kinds of credit we like, um, we still like asset back credit. So that's my pr preference. Uh, and and um, there's two ways you can get credit, right? You can get it direct, which is by being a direct lender, which is what we do. And we do a lot of direct lending to multifamily, like PREF in the 12 to 14%, 15% interest rates. And that's something we've done a lot of, as I said, I've done, or we've done like 87 or 88 of those transactions um we've just done a lot so so i we know that and um, it's great but it's the other place you can get it which is a part of the real estate market it's funny the real estate people are obsessed with finance and capital markets but they actually rarely operate inside capital markets it's like it's like opaque to them where their debt comes from and and a lot of debt comes from mutual funds and, you know, large insurance companies that are buyers of the paper that gets issued from their direct real estate. And so we've been on the buy side, they call it, you know, it's a buy side versus the sell side. And you buy from investment banks like Goldman and Deutsche Bank and Nomura and, and, and being on the buy side, super fascinating. We learned a lot by going, we started buying, um, 14, 15 months ago, we started buying um, paper and the credit markets were like broken. It kind of got better and then that's probably getting worse again. But like you can get, you can get, I mean, now God knows what you can get, but it was like 9, 10, 12, 14% yields on rated investment grade paper on the real estate deals. Like, you know, if I take, multifamily or take build for rent or take those things, right? Where you're, maybe I can buy it out of five and a half or six, and then I'm going to lever it at negative leverage. You can literally go in and get that same real estate asset at an attachment point of like 60% or 50% of your basis at like a 12% yield. That's through CLOs or what's the vehicle that is pushing that to you guys? Typically, it's a um, it's not CLO. No, it's a you know a, you may call it RMBS. I mean, it's basically okay. Um, mortgage security. It's, it's mortgage back security. Yeah, and so yeah. you know, I mean, I I know. I mean, I've <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm there's very few people in the market who um, buy across all these types of things. Like, so I I we buy the the multifamily buildings and we also buy the paper and you can just see you're like wait a second like we did a bit we did a lot of a lot of sfr um paper and we were in there at like a hundred dollars a square foot 120 dollars a square foot for and, and you know it's, so it's like 60 percent or 62 percent lt ltv you know getting double digit yields mm. And I'm like all day long. Yeah, wow. <laughs> this is and this is a lot easier. It's just and, and you guys are probably big enough that you could also lever that with your own lines of credit if you were so inclined. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we haven't levered it, but like it, at some point, at some point, if, if rates came down, you'd be able to lever that into like a high teens, you know, return maybe twenty current. Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally twenty current. Yeah, yeah. and so. That's why. That's why when I when you say like, you know, like flows and interest rates, like, you know that 
that's why you're you're you know an investor or money generally is going to be there and not on the equity because it's just it's crazy to be on the equity if you can be in the debt at the at a higher return yeah but i think you're right you you guys um i look i don't you're right i'm not a participant in the capital markets i don't see that sort of buy side opportunity that you're articulating my sense of it though is that a lot of the different fund vehicles that i reach out to on a regular basis similarly are not buyers of, no. right so they don't they understand that the cost of borrowing for, you know, let's say I go to Benefit Street or some other private debt fund that has a back end securitization vehicle or ready capital that's going to go put that paper out through Goldman to you guys. They understand that the marginal cost of borrowing is higher and so that it has an impact on everything downstream from there, which is to your point of capital flows are downstream from interest rates. But they're not looking in a sort of risk, like they don't have a window no. on the left side going, well, here, I could do this LP equity deal and I can get a one seven X and, and a 22 IRR, or I could lever up a 14% piece of paper that attaches at 62% LTV and get a 22 at 62 LTV with a little bit of leverage. Like, thankfully that AB view isn't in those vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like the, the market structure it's fragmented mm -hmm. and most people in the market are sitting in a piece of the fragmented part. They're not looking, they're not at the, looking at the hole. There are some at the hole and it, it you'd have to go upstream. So in theory, like a, a CalPERS or like a, maybe more like a Yale would be thinking about it that way. And they're thinking like, well, I'm not going to allocate to the real estate private equity fund because that actually doesn't look as good as allocating over here. And what's happening is these funds can't raise money and then you can't mm -hmm. get money for your JV deal. So it is happening, just happening further upstream from like multiple steps away from you. Yeah, that's interesting. That makes a ton of sense. Um, I'm a little reluctant to bring this up because I know we've been going for a while, but I also know it's, it's something that you're passionate about based on the pod I just listened to on your guys' show, um, software eats the world, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, you know, pattern recognition was the way that you were speaking of it and, and the computational powers of these uh, algorithms to kind of take a whole bunch of noise and go, actually, that's A, that's B, that's C, and the leverage that's going to show up for us to be able to do things with like an efficiency that we don't even yet really comprehend. I mean, I, I keep going like it's fire, it's electricity, and then it's AI. Like I think it's that big of a, a sort of tectonic shift. Um, mm -hmm. Take that wherever you want, but I, I know you got a lot to say about it. And if you if you want to be brief, that's fine. I understand it. Um, but it, it, where do you see it impacting real estate? Where do you see it impacting fundrise? Like, what's your crystal yeah, ball? Yeah, there's, I think there's a few things that a few ways to touch on it. One is like. How's it affecting our investment strategy for our customer? How it affects Fundrise? How it affects real estate? So just let me just do it in the quick order. So, like most people don't get to invest in these companies, these tech companies, and and that in the same way that you should, that you should be invested in real estate the way a professional does, you should be invested in tech the way professionals do. I think it's a very good asset class. But it's a hard one to. Parse, just like it's hard to invest in good real estate, it's even harder to invest in good tech. 
but I think it's uh, it is a good investment if you can do that. And and so far we have been able to do that, which has been awesome. I think it that defies the market expectations of who should be good at it. And but we 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 have been, and I get into that. So, anyways, I think that the venture capital fund, especially with the way AI is now breaking, um, or the next wave of of breakthroughs is happening, is is really exciting. Two has effect fundrise. Fundrise, we're lucky. We're sitting at this nexus of sort of capital, real estate, and tech. And I think that's a nexus where we're one of the few people who can sort of bring those things together and maybe leverage AI in in product building to build something that something that that, that is is um, going to be a great asset for people in in your your seat. Like we, we we're going to build some stuff with it, and it's a gift and. The reason I want to build stuff with it is that I think um, it's going to have huge efficacy for people in real estate. It's going to make me a better tech investor because I'm actually building with the tech. And then it's it's going to it have a huge effect on real estate because real estate, as much as real estate people are not tech people and they are not, if you look at what has been most of consequential of real estate, it's been basically the cycle which is 2008 and now 2020 and, and now 23, and then tech. So work from homes, destroying office, e-commerce, destroyed retail, e-commerce, built industrial, and AI is going to do something very significant to real estate. And we don't know exactly what it is yet, but the likely way to know is by being very close to it. So I'm, I'm saying very close to it. I think it's going to to help me be a better real estate investor too. So there's all these things happening and I get to be right in the middle of it. And that's uh, such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. I mean, it sounds like a super fun place to play, to be honest. So the, the, uh, innovation fund, are you guys going, uh, strategically or do you have a, a mandate to try to get, um, that sort of retail investor into tech that's also related to, AI or that the apps that are going to be built on top of it. Yeah, I mean, and we have. I mean, we we've already raised hundred million dollars from, and that's I don't know, thirty thousand investors, something. So a good number. And we've already invested in in like some of the best private tech companies in the world. I mean, which is incredible. And I can name them, and and you'll never heard of them, but like Databricks and DBT and. Um, and some of these LLMs, we're actually getting into these companies that are underneath of all this tech. And that is insane that we got into them. And um, and then our investors are getting into them because of that. So it's, I think we're gonna, I mean, we, we did the thing that tech people told me, venture people told me I, I wouldn't be able to do, which is get access to the best companies. We invested in the best, I mean, if you look at the list of the top 10 best companies in the world, like I think we invested in like three to five of them already, nice. which nice. is, yeah, which is defies like market sort of market expectations. They sort of said, I wouldn't be able to do that. And so, and then, and then think about venture capital, which is true with all things, but venture capital particularly is that it's a winners keep winning. It's a virtuous cycle. The best companies are signals for the next company. Like, Oh, Oh, you were in Databricks and DBT and Service Titan and Canva, you know. Oh, then I, uh, I, I'll take your money too. 
and and so it's it's um we leveled up and then i think as we build with the ai it's going to make us even more uh, of a credible and 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 um oh i got you i got you you were able to allocate capital into winning companies and that mm -hmm. is a badge of credibility so when you go to the next winning companies they're like hey these guys know what they're doing look at the other companies they had some influence on yeah yeah i mean it's yeah, just yeah. I, I always hated when people did this is they're like look i invested in facebook i'm a genius mm -hmm. and, and <laughs> or I, you got lucky yeah you got lucky and, I, and i'm <laughs> and i invested in these great companies and i'm not a genius i just got into them because it was and i and i say it was obvious it was obvious this is a great company i'm not you have to be a numbskull not to see that. It, it's just that uh, because of my capital sources, I could I could be flexible in getting into them. I didn't have to do it the old-fashioned way, which basically is like inferior. I mean, the way that really you, you can understand in real estate, if I'm like, oh, here's a great opportunity, I get to go raise this money. Oh, I have to go raise it from like institutional LPs. Well, good. I'll come to act me like a year or two from now, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, totally. I, there's a moment in time when the venture market collapsed, real estate tech market, the, the real estate market's collapsing, but the tech market collapsed last year. And we showed up and we bought and we invested. Mm -hmm. And that was. I think amazing things happen when you have a flag in the air that says we have money. Yeah. I mean, we had to go get it. Nobody came to us. <laughs> Nobody mm -hmm. that was good. Yeah. Yeah. But it's but we did it, and that's and that's like um, people don't know because you know these names aren't yet aren't yet wide, widely known. Like you never and, heard and of are those happened. investors? Uh, this is a little self serving question, but the people who have bought into say Data Break or Data Breaks, whichever that is, and you're right, I don't know the mm -hmm. name of that company. Um, are those now in the fund, and mm -hmm. you can buy shares in the fund? Or yes, okay. So if somebody who wants to get access to that and come into the fund now can still get access yes we we <laughs> have the we usually open up access for like once a month and there's and there can be a queue because we're trying to control uh the flow of funds mm -hmm. but um there's a moment in time there, it's still here but it's the windows sort of starting to close when there was more there wasn't enough money in the tech space that, that sort of the, the money went to the sidelines in tech and it's starting to come off the sidelines, but it hasn't totally come off the sidelines yet. It's starting to, and um, putting aside like the crazy AI headlines, um, money's money is slow. It's a really really funny. It's a slow, um, and then it has too much momentum. Right, it's slow to start, but then it gets too much momentum. <laughs> so that's and then we overshoot. Then we overshoot. Yeah. One, one, and right now we're overshooting real estate and techs more or less recovering on the recovery like shift a little bit to the personal side it definitely appears that you're a guy who lets the arrow fly right you're looking out in the marketplace you see opportunity and you're taking the shots and i think there's you know some of these ideas of like analysis paralysis and and just the whole idea of action versus thinking um from my perspective just on this short conversation it seems you're in motion. Like you guys were early movers in 2010, 2012. You've pivoted multiple times. You've recognized that, hey, if we could do this for real estate, we can do this for tech. Let's let's alleviate a lot of the friction. This, I wonder how that lands for you. Is it is it a native, natural thing? Or do you have to sort of 
do something in order to just be in motion? Like, how do you, how do you think about thought versus action and, and letting the arrow fly? I learned this the hard way, which is that you learn from doing. And so it's, it, it, it's, you go to market first, you learn, and then you scale. So it's, it's, you want to take limited risks in the beginning, but you want to do it by being in, in motion, as you said, or, or by, so one of those things, I love the saying, it works in practice, but not in theory. Mm-hmm. A lot of things are that way, like Airbnb, like was unintuitive and, and Uber even was unintuitive, but it worked in practice. It's not in theory. And so um, mostly you learn by being in the market and being close to the market. And then that's where you find signal in the market by, by listening. And then, and like some of the investments we made early, they're like small investments. And, our, our, and we have hired this guy from a private, a tech private equity fund. He's great. And he's like, should we make this investment or not? And I'm like, it's so small. It's an option to get in this company. And if the company is great, we're in. And if the company is not good, it's like, it's like, it's a rounding error. And so like um, portfolio theory, that's why the deal, like don't focus on the deal, focus on the whole. And so, and, and that's basically, so it's a combination of having a large perspective and having a perspective that's um, grounded in practice, not in like, um, you know, the theory or the institutional biases that exist sort of away from the, you know, blood sport in the field. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Away from the blood sport in the field. I was with you until that last little. Well, because institutional investors are there, or most people are far from what's happening, like literally on the ground, especially if you're the more senior you get, the further away you get from what's happening, like in the meeting, in the city where the deal is happening. Yes. Yes. And you want to be, you know, I, I hate getting it secondhand because I'm like, the thing that's important, you didn't say the thing that everybody like i don't believe is the thing you came away from the meeting with like you right the skill of listening yeah that's something that it that seems to be i think maybe it comes with age but you you really want to listen for what the problem the person's having on the other side and if you hear that problem from multiple people that's really interesting (laughs) i love the idea of finding signal in there too right like that is the signal like, let's get in the markets and find where there's a gap between where somebody is and where they want to be. And, and that's yeah. the place and, you can step and in. And a big organization, like, you know, 300 people, if you're at Blackstone or whatever, like, it's it's actually really hard to you're, – you're, you're removed from the signal. You're having to hear the signal from people who are, are like, you know, you're three steps removed from the market. You know, you're – you know, how much does Jamie Dimon – like, does he actually know? Because he's not actually in the meetings, right? Like the Fed, the Fed is so freaking far away from what's it, the ground, and that's like the more successful you are, the more they they remove you from the ground, it, and it's just the worst. It takes away your like. It's like you're trying to play music and you're just so far from the beat. <laughs> that's a great analogy. That totally lands for me. Um, Daily routines. I'm changing gears here a little bit, but um, 
you know, for me, it's like, if I can kind of get my day together, I, I might have a good day. And if I can have a bunch of good days, then I can move towards, uh, my vision of, you know, what the year and five years and 10 years might look like. Um, what do you have that might be a daily routine that kind of tees you up, um, for, for performance? I mean, you're clearly a high performer with a lot of agency around your space. Um, but how do you, how do you cultivate that? I mean, it's changed so much with, you know, there's before you have kids and after you have kids. <laughs> totally. And so before you have kids, it's about like, you know, trying to learn, read and, and just be obsessed with learning. And with try once you have kids and maybe also if you have like an extreme career, but I think kids is the most extreme thing. It's just like grit, it's just pure toughness and just, and, and, um, hopefully you prepared yourself and you learned as much as you could before you had kids because you have less time to, to learn and, and more, and it's more about just toughness and, 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 and continuing to like, <laughs> just be, you have to act like nothing bothers you. Even if, you know, I don't know if you have multiple kids and everybody's upset and, world's falling apart and everybody's angry and you haven't slept in, you know, three years, like <laughs> three years. I love it. <laughs> you, exactly you have to right. basically act like <laughs> none of that stuff is effective. Yeah, and that's, I've... that's your job. Yeah. And that's, I, I feel like that's my job. And that's, and it's like, um, I don't know. And, and like, I, I do very, I have varying degrees of, uh, depending on how little I slept like how good I am at that day. But I mean, my goal is basically to bring what everyone else needs to the situation and not bring what I need. Mm -hmm. That's not their problem. That's cool. Br bring what they need and you, you can kind of fall second. Yeah. Being second or third. And that's what good manager is, right? You bring what, or, or, you know, sort of, they call servant leadership is whatever it's everybody first, but, and you second, if you have kids, like, you know, it's like, you're like 10th. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but there's also another side of that, which I think I can hear in, in the way you're speaking of it. Um, it is a bit of a noble endeavor within, within the construct of the family. And, and like, we, I'm laughing about the three years of no sleep because I get it. Um, but like also a gift, right. You're, you've, you've used that word in, in some of the, like, being able to be at tech and real estate and capital, but also to be like, that's cool. Put another kid on my back. I haven't slept in four days. I got to go into this meeting, pitch this guy, see if we can pull in another 15 million. And oh yeah, don't forget, we got to do this and this and this and this and this. Like it's, it's also a pretty righteous thing as difficult as it is. It's, it's a pretty good, pretty good channel, if you will. It can be righteous. I mean, it's one of the, I got really cynical the first like through the through the 2010s because like um the, the definition of cynicism is you don't expect people to operate honorably mm -hmm. and I, I i i say it's slightly differently i say rarely do people transcend their incentives totally your incentives are to do the deal you're going to say it's a good deal your incentives are you know um you want the promotion, you're going to like sort of lean into it and the incentives get the better people's value system or beliefs align with their incentives. 
and that's not a coincidence. Like the incentives came first, not second. And that's such a depressing thing. Now I have seen people transcend their incentives, which is extremely rare. And like, that's, I think that's the definition of, of, of being noble or righteous is, is, is to transcend incentives. And, and that's like, um, you know, even when you're trying to, it, it can be invisible that you aren't fully succeeding, <laughs> but, but that's, I think that's, that's a, that's a goal, but, mm-hmm. the, but the path is a path is the, is the, is the heart is being tough. It's like, you know, being beaten down and keep getting back up. That's, well, and that's it. Maybe that's what I'm alluding to with like the nobility, if you will, right? The the incentive structure isn't really there, right? Like, hey, I'm going to beat you down a little more, beat you down a little more, beat you down. Like, you think you get the message, dude? Stay down. But you're like, yeah, no, no, no. We're gonna we're gonna keep going. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, as a parent, you know this, but this happens all the time, everywhere. But it's like, did not give what you got. Right. You get beaten down. You don't beat down the next person below you. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's you see people under stress and they just start lashing out. Um, and then, like, I don't know, for, if you talk to people who are who've been whatever founders, like if you really get them in a private moment, they'd be like, oh, yeah. And I got sick. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I ended up doing all these having all these problems. And I think that, like, your body can give out first. Yeah. Um, how about like the growth side? Obviously you're having a lot of opportunity to grow just within the, the walk of, of fundrise and all of the different as- aspects of it. But do you have a business coach? Do you have any coursework you're doing? I mean, it sounds like time is probably one of your scarcest commodities, but there's, are there things that you do to deliberately sharpen the saw? I mean, probably like a lot of people who listen to podcasts, like, my pleasure is learning and so like when i go have free time i'll i'll be doing things that are like nerdy so like i've enjoyed it learning about ai because i've enjoyed learning about like linear algebra and and reading about transformers and trying to understand like the tech and so i'm like i'm i i i feel like um synthesis or getting broader is valuable and i enjoy it and, and I think a lot of people are trained to, to instead do the opposite, to specialize, to get narrower. And I think that is one way to be successful. But I think that there, there's another way is, is to go and have, know many things. This is Isaiah Berlin. If you, you know, he had this whole thing of the fox and the hedgehog. And the fox knows many things and the hedgehog knows one thing. And so... Um, you know, there, there's there's different approaches, but I, I I really like seeing the patterns across many things. Hmm. Yeah, you clearly have a a knack for it. Um, message to entrepreneurs: like, what's what's a message you send out to real estate or tech or capital? Because you're kind of in all of it. Um, entrepreneurs who who might be, you know, on the deep scary part of the roller coaster or, or cresting and having the time of their life or, or maybe just getting started. Um, what kind of, if you will, words of wisdom might you pass on to fellow entrepreneurs on, on the journey? I feel like every knows is hard and every knows 
it's like time's pretty miserable. I think most people don't talk about it because it's really like, it's just not, I think it, um, showing that weakness or vulnerability is like not actually, I mean, in a way, as I said, it's not, it's not your job to show that, right? That's like, it's your problem. And as a result, people don't appreciate, like if they're suffering, how much like, like other people have and they're not like, this is both, they're not alone. And that it's, it's just, it's just the, it's part of the, the, the journey and, uh, and not have it, you know, and not end up having undermine yourself and then all the self doubt that comes with it. Like suffering and the misery is like, um, it's just, it's like kids. I mean, it's just a part of the package. And like, if you can just like, <laughs> if you can hold on, like it, it, it gets a lot better. Hmm. That's interesting. So what do you do when you're like down there when you're like, okay, this, this is the full shit sandwich. This sucks. I mean, me, I, I don't have a formula. I just like, I just keep on going. Yeah. <laughs> I, I try to tell I me mean, I was like, think less. <laughs> just keep going. Yeah. Don't think so much. And don't, and, and don't drink. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, um, I had a guy on the podcast a good while back and, uh, we were kind of doing the Tim Ferriss thing on like, if you could buy a billboard, put something on it, what would you, what would you put? Uh, actually, I don't think it was the billboard question. I think he answered it with the billboard. Um, and it was this question. And he said, there's a Johnny Walker billboard that I see every time walking on the way to the gym. And it just says, walk on. Right. Which is exactly what you're saying. Like, Hey, keep walking. Yeah. Keep, yeah. keep walking. And, and, yeah. and I, and I like, Oh, I guess a slightly more constructive version of that is like, <laughs> um, it's okay to like do things for yourself, you know, to go like, you know, we have a thing. I, you know, the people I've gotten them hotel rooms, they come to the office they tell everybody to go in the office and then they go to the hotel room and they go to sleep. <laughs> and they just tell everybody that they they were traveling or they that they were at work and they literally go sleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I'm like, and they feel really guilty about it and they feel like they and I'm like, no, 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 you have to like take if you don't take care of yourself, like you're you're gonna burn out. And so that's sort of like finding those things that you need just to, to like to refuel. Otherwise, yeah, I think I you you. Turning to drink, or I, I don't drink, but like I'm not, I just I just see that a lot of people turn to like trying to find artificial ways to um, find solace. Mm-hmm. I think those are don't they take more than they give. Yeah, and so finding the thing that that re- replenishes you is a, is like an important part of the you know, just as important as finding signal in the market and. And, you know, managing people well and, and being good at, you know, underwriting or wherever the things are, like, it's also being, knowing how to replenish yourself is like a, it's a skill. It's a, it's a piece of work. You have to put work into it. And if you don't, like, you'll suffer for it. Uh, what is yours? How do you replenish? Um, it's the geeking out. It's like getting into linear algebra and, and yeah. fig- figuring out how the processors work and all that. That's the refresh. Well, for me, it has to be alone 
to go like go actually off and, and be alone and and not actually have to be i'm not an extrovert even though i, I play one <laughs> play one in the movies <laughs> and so I, I need to go off and and be alone for a while and that's like how i replenish cool uh, ben, this has been fantastic. It actually went really fast and we've been on for a good bit. Um, I'll leave it to you for any bits you want to leave behind, including, um, you know, getting, I mean, everybody can Google fundraisers. You'll find they've got tons of content, but anything you want to put out there for, um, you know, how people can get in touch with fundraise the platform or anything at all, I'll leave it to you to kind of wrap it up. Well, I'm on Twitter at Ben Miller Rise and, you know, fundrise.com. If you want to reach out to us, we're like super responsive. And then uh, maybe I'll leave uh, uh, some podcast recommendations. If you, if you want to like, um, if you want to learn about tech, there's a, a lot of good podcasts. One I love is called Acquired. Those guys, I know those guys who are like the podcasters acquired. And then you go listen to one about TSMC or, or on Sequoia, like the, they do histories of companies, NVIDIA, and they're, they're just absolutely awesome. And they really can give you background, you know? So I think they're long, they're four or five hour podcasts. So they're super geeky, Dig it. but they're, those are great podcasts. If you're trying to like, um, if you're trying to like broaden your knowledge. Sequoia Capital. Is yeah, the Sequoia one that, Capital. Yeah, yeah. but they, right. you have to go find the one that's the history of Sequoia. That history right. of Sequoia, Don Valentine is such an awesome story. Hmm. Um, ben, thanks for taking this time to talk with me. Thanks for sharing with all the listeners. Anybody who's listened to the end here, please uh, take the time and you know go through your app and you know rate it and give any feedback. That's all that stuff is super welcome. Uh, ben, again, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Yeah, onward. <laughs>